I uh, happened to be called for jury duty this uh, past week, and uh, I, I was number 35 in a panel of 40, and fortunately I was passed up. But I did get a chuckle while I was there. This was a, a case that uh, uh, they wanted to be sure that uh, the, the, the uh, jury panel did not have a, a bias against lawyers or against the legal process. Yeah, we should have told lawyer jokes. That would have ended it all. But but what the lawyers said to the to the panel now is there anyone here who who has a problem with the process uh, so much so that he's just not going to be able to to really be objective? <laughs> One guy at the back <laughs> says, "Yes, sir." He says, "I don't think it's right." He says. We stay here all day. We get six bucks. You stay here all day. You get big bucks. You're sitting in a big cushy leather chair. We're sitting in oak benches. I don't think it's fair. <laughs> I'm going to remember that line for the next time I'm on a jury panel. I'm sure he was excused. I'm sure there are some women who have the same sort of sentiment when they come to the New Testament and the teaching of Scripture as to the ministry which God has for them. They may think that the men get all the good parts and the women get the leftover parts. But I want to say as I begin this message, I have not seen such a woman in this body. And, and so let me just uh, very carefully and clearly say that I do not see in the women of this body, I do not see the spirit of debate that I see within evangelical circles and, of course, outside in secular circles. There is not a debate as to whether or not the scriptures teach what they do about the ministry of women, in particular in the context of the church. I believe that the desire of the women as the desire of the men is to understand the text and in particular to understand how it applies to them. And so the questions that I'm going to deal with this morning are almost all issues of application. How do these things apply? And those are very valid and legitimate questions to consider. And, and some have even asked the question whether we have drawn the lines far enough. Uh, have we really taken the scriptures as far as we should? And some of those who have asked the question have been women. Are we really going as far as the scriptures would seem to indicate that we should? Now let's uh, talk for a moment about the, the reasons why uh, we need to have questions and answers today. I'm, I'm really glad to be able to lay this subject to rest. Next week we're going to talk about the leadership of men. Am I a bad boy again? I forgot to turn on my switch. Hello. <laughs> I can't blame anybody but me. Good grief, I've got one button to push and I can't get it right. No wonder. Okay. Let's talk about why there are questions to uh, answer. One is that the interpretation differs and, and uh, of these texts. Now, you know that that doesn't bother me a whole lot. 
It does, however, get my attention when people who are committed to the scriptures are committed to the way in which we go about doing church uh, and want to be obedient. If they differ from me in their interpretation or their application, I want to take note of that because these are people who are taking the scriptures seriously and, and so I want to give uh, uh, credit to them in terms of the variations they may have. Uh, secondly, there are differences regarding application. Uh, some would agree on the interpretation of a text, but would say that the application may be better suited in some other way. Uh, let's see, where am I at? Some would agree on the, on the uh, well, I said that. Some would agree on the specifics, but not the particulars. And number four, the elders of purpose not to require certain things in a legalistic way, and specifically now I'm talking about head coverings. I'll come back to that subject. But but the elders don't want to make head coverings some kind of legalistic duty, because that will, if it is not done from the heart, if it is not done from a real sense of conviction, then that's really not what it's about. And so we don't want to make this some kind of a test of spirituality or of obedience. Um, and, as I said, we're mostly concerned about heart attitudes. The other thing I would say is that some decisions are, are necessary but arbitrary. <laughs> and, and that is certainly the case here. I think I've said that before, but I want to say it again. Lines have to be drawn, no matter what church it is. There are lines that are going to have to be drawn or not drawn, but consciously so, as to as to exactly what the role of women will be in ministry. In in many, I would say, still, although it's changing, in in many evangelical churches, women are still not uh, elders, and that would be a line that that they would draw. Uh, in in many to most evangelical churches. I would say that women do not preach, uh, although I think the tide is moving in the wrong direction. At least that is the case. So everyone has to draw a line, and where you draw that line may appear to be arbitrary. In fact, I'll just say, it is arbitrary. The one thing that makes me uncomfortable about this message is that I like to stand behind the pulpit and say, this is what God's Word says. You know, and that's, there it is. But when it comes to the application of these things, there are lines that we will draw where I think it's difficult to say the Lord commanded it to be done just this way. It's just, that's our sense of the way in which we believe we can be best be obedient to that. Recognizing others draw the lines a little differently, even within our own circles. So uh, I think we just have to, to keep those things in mind. Now let's talk about uh, questions and answers. And the first one is about head coverings. Now I have to say a couple of things about that. In the questions that were passed on to me, this by far was the greatest area of interest and had the greatest number of questions. Um, and, and I want to say to you that, that we as elders don't want to make this the focal area. It is an area that needs to be dealt with, but we don't want to make head covering somehow the essence of what 
the whole issue of the ministry of women in the church is about. So it's not the litmus test. I may say that more than once because it's important. The other thing that I think is, is almost humorous about this is that this comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. And, and I find it uh, um, amazing. I, I, amusing is probably pressing me a little hard. I, I think irritating is more the, the word I would use. It is interesting to me that, that those who, who want to oppose the New Testament teaching on the ministry of women, particularly the public ministry of women, they rush to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And they land on chapter 5, you know, where it says if a woman prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, so on and so forth. And they, they immediately press that to, to, to assume that women therefore have a public prominent role in the meeting of the church, and yet they ignore and deny the whole rest of the text. They'll grab chapter, chapter 11, verse 5, they'll cling to it, as their very life depended on it, and it might, because that's their best shot. And then everything else just goes out the window. It doesn't, it's like it isn't even there. And I gotta say, if you wanna make chapter 11 your, your center point, take it all, or just ignore it all, but don't land on verse 5 and try to make something of it that I believe it doesn't say. Well, the next frame, I, I'm a little unhappy with the, my order, but uh, the question that's been raised on head covering is, why have the elders not made this a, uh, a, a standard, a benchmark? Why have they not made this, if you want to put it in those terms, a rule that, uh, that would apply to our church? And the second part of that question is, why don't all the elders' wives wear head coverings? I want to address that issue first if I can. I think I've said this before, but I, I've preached on, on the role of women in particular. I've preached on 1 Corinthians 11 at least three times in my recollection, and in my old age it may have been more than that. But I, but I remember one time after I had preached uh, on it, at times I've been more neutral and then I've been more, more uh, aggressive and positive about it. And one of the dear brethren came up to me and said, uh, Oh, brother, you... Uh, you preached on uh, on the head coverings, and I noticed your wife isn't wearing one. And and I said, uh, yes, that's right. And and I would say this: one, it's her decision. It's it's not my decision to make for her. This is a decision that she ought to make in terms of what she believes is obedient for the Lord. And the second thing I think I need to say to you is, if I can't convince my wife, then it must have been me. That was, that was doing badly in this. It's a reflection on my preaching. I don't think it's a reflection on my wife. And, and I think I would say, I still believe it is my wife's choice as to how she chooses to obey this because it is her personal act of, of uh, obedience in, in the way she chooses to our Lord. Uh, and I, I said uh, then in that, in that first point of the frame that we don't want to make this the litmus test, that somehow whether you're in or out has to do with what you have or do not have on your head. There are legitimate differences, and, and I want to talk about those for, for just a second. And, and I'm talking now about, about people within our own uh, uh, camp, as it were, who see things as we do, people that I respect highly. 
one of the ways in, in which uh, 1 Corinthians 11 is viewed is that a woman shows her submission by her silence. Or, or remember, uh, our friend Orville talks about, you know, what you do is just as important as what you say. You can put something on top of your head, and it, it doesn't really prove anything uh, in terms of whether you're truly submissive. I, I've seen some mighty strange things come out from under some mighty big hats. <laughs> doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't always work the way it's supposed to, just because you got the symbol out there. So th there, there are those who would feel that what is required in the public meeting of the church is that women reveal their submission by their silence. And, and that, I think, we've seen consistently now for 30 years, plus in our body, and it happens elsewhere, that's a tangible action that manifests a, a heart of submission to the teaching of our Lord. Now, the, the other part of that would be that when it comes to head covering, the head covering in their minds would best apply in other contexts where the woman is not silent. So if a woman, and I'm not saying this is the rule, I'm saying this is the way they view it, and I, and I respect their, their understanding. They would say if a woman is teaching a Sunday school class, she may choose to wear a head covering there, because now she is not showing her submission by her silence, but she is still giving evidence to it by what she's doing. She's teaching a, a, a women's Bible study, or in some other context. Some have raised the question about, about wearing a head covering at home. And I guess what I would say is, I know we're to pray without ceasing. I don't think that means that a woman has to wear a head covering all the time. If someone chooses to wear a head covering while they pray, I have, I have no objection with that at all. My point is simply to say that, that there are a number of ways in which godly people who have submissive spirits have chosen to make the application of these texts, and it is not that they are trying to avoid something, it is that they are trying as best they can to, uh, to follow it in the, in the spirit of the text. Another issue is, is the question of the, the actual effect of what one does. If, as we're studying the New Testament, the purpose in 1 Corinthians 11 is that the woman does not seek to bring glory to herself. That may happen in a variety of ways. It may happen by her words. It may even happen by her head covering. <laughs> if she's wearing one that's gaudy enough, people are going to look. And, and in a sense, technically you're in, but, but is the effect of that uh, somehow different from what the scriptures would call for? Is it possible that in some churches, I, I'm aware just in, in one instance of somebody who has thought about this, and they said, if I wore a head covering in my church, I would be the only woman to do so. And so the question is, in, in doing that, does that actually, in a sense, uh, take the attention off of her and place it onto her husband, or does it do the reverse? Does it draw attention to her in a way that she does not intend? All of that is a way of saying that this is not always a simplistic application, and, and that's why we want husbands and wives to discuss this. We want you to, to agonize about what it is that best carries out the spirit of the text, and then to do it. But those are things that we believe are important. So we want to allow for individual differences in interpretation and conviction and application in these things.
that I think includes the husband's involvement. In my, in my personal opinion, it's going to be a matter of conviction on the part of the wife, and I don't think husbands dictate convictions to wives or overrule them in their wives. So it seems to me that the, the, the men need to be involved, but the women probably need to have a, a significant part of that decision. Does it accomplish the goal? And again, some may choose to cover their heads in different circumstances than here in this meeting. Okay, or in the meeting of the church. Uh, fourth, what suffices for a covering? Oh my goodness, I mean, doesn't this thing just go on and on? And he's like, oh, good grief. Uh, but, but the question has been raised, does a woman's hair provide a covering for her, for her, a sufficient covering. Is that what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? All right, here's my, here's my take on it. I'm not, it's not official and it's certainly not papal in any sense. What, what hair does is cover a bald head. That sounds pretty simple to me. When Paul speaks about a woman's hair, in 1 Corinthians 11, he says her hair is her glory, right? And so when she, when she covers her hair, she covers her glory. That is one of those things that would bring attention to her. And as I, as I've said before, there are other things that are glorious in our culture and, and they really need to be covered too. So it's not just a matter of hair. But in, in, the, in the Middle Eastern culture, that may be all you see of a woman is her head. And so what she does in terms of her hair or in terms of her jewelry has a significant impact upon how much attention is being focused uh, on her. So I would say that a woman's hair is not the covering. It is simply an illustration that God has given woman a covering. But if her hair is her glory, then whatever is going to cover her glory needs to be something that covers her hair, if, if, that's, uh, if that's your understanding, as it is mine. Her silence is important, and some would say that the silence of the woman in the public meeting of the church is all that is required. What form of cover? I am not going there. Uh, believe me, but I have to say, I have seen some really wing dingy hats, and, and I'm not against hats, but, but again, the point is not drawing attention rather than drawing attention to yourself. And in all of that, you could have the perfect, whatever that covering is, you could have the perfect covering if it's not really done in the right spirit, then in my opinion, it's, it's of no uh, value. Oh, let me say one more thing. The question has been raised also about the length of hair and, and whether the woman ought to cut her hair. I would simply say this. From, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it's talking about men who have long hair, and it would be a shame to them, women who have long hair, and it would be a glory. I, here's, here's the way I'm inclined to go with that. I, I think that culture changes with respect to the length of hair somewhat. But what I would say is from Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, remember it talks about a man should not wear a woman's clothing and a woman ought not to wear a man's clothing. Now, that's kind of an interesting text. But, but it seems to me, my very simple way of viewing life, a man ought to look like a man and a woman ought to look like a woman. And so 
I don't know how many inches of hair you need. It just seems to me, I have, I confess, I have said to my wife, what is that? And I don't know. I don't know whether it's male or female because of, of all kinds of factors. And, and, and don't you think it's just kind to at least let people know what, where you are in all that? I think it is. And I think that's, that's the primary purpose. That in your dress and in your length of hair and all those things, people ought to look at you and know what you are. Uh, we don't need confusion about that. And, and I say that, folks, because this is critical. This is really critical. We live in a society that is blurring the lines of gender. Is that not right? And, and, and this is frightening to me. I'm going to go, I'm going to jump on my soapbox right now because I almost forgot this and I'm just going to say it. For, for some time now, in, in, in recent translations, there has been this genderless notion and, and, and every time it says man, you know, they translate it mankind or man and woman. And I find myself even at times saying men and women, so I make sure I haven't, you know, messed it all up. I have to say, folks, when God uses a masculine word, leave it masculine for crying out loud. I'm just, I'm really just tired of all this stuff. And in a translation of scripture, to obliterate the distinction that God has given between maleness and femaleness. For goodness sakes, get over it, whoever they are out there. Get over it and, and leave the text alone. I, I'm just, I admit, I'm just getting fed up with it and, and it frustrates me. But it's a part of our culture. Obliterate all the lines. And it seems to me that whether it's our dress or our conduct or our words, we ought to be distinguishing maleness from femaleness. Somebody sent me this last couple of weeks, an article by C.S. Lewis, and it was about the Church of England, I think, was going to, was debating the question of whether or not to have priestesses. It was marvelous. It was an excellent article. And if you want it, you ask me and, and I'll see if I can, I can get you a copy of that. Good thing. Okay, where was I before I got mad? When should a woman cover her head? Uh, I, I think this is really a soft spot, I have to say for us, is, is that we have, for those who do cover their heads, generally speaking, uh, they do so at the Lord's Supper, but they do not do so at other times on, on Sunday morning. I'm not going to do a visual analysis of the group right now to figure that out, but that's often the case. And, and, and I think one of the things that we probably have done uh, consciously or unconsciously, is we have distinguished between the Lord's Supper and, and the meeting of the church there and preaching. And I'm not really sure that's a legitimate distinction. When we first started, uh, I've said this before, but when we first started coming out of Believer's Chapel, they met for the Lord's Supper on Sunday night, and they met for preaching on Sunday morning. We felt that the sad part of that was that many people did not see the importance of the Lord's table and that they would not attend. Four out of five people would not attend Sunday night to, to be at the Lord's table. And we thought that was wrong. So we brought the Lord's table into Sunday morning, gave it a prominent place, and we confess, made it difficult for you not to come to it. Now, I would say most of you, if you had to make a decision between the two, I lose. And that's not bad. But my, my reminder is the preaching of the Word of God is important too. And so I'm, I'm not sure that we can separate Sunday morning and say, this is the meeting of the church, 
And this is the preaching hour in the sense that they are separate entities. And so all I'm saying is Sunday morning to me feels like it's the same thing. And when I see what I see in the scriptures, it looks to me like the same thing. And so maybe we need to think about our consistency. And so do we do it during electives and preaching? That's something for women to think about. At home when praying, that's something to think about. Or teaching a children's class or a women's Bible study, that's something to give consideration to. When should we do that? Now, to come down with a hard and fast legalistic answer to that, you know, people do it, but I'm not sure that's wise. What we want is people from the heart to be obedient to the scriptures. Okay, about uh, married women and single women. Uh, that was a question that was raised. How do you deal with that? And I guess I would start by saying, when you look at the subject of submission, you will discover that it is clearly taught in one set of texts. It is clearly taught in the context of marriage. Ephesians chapter 5 uh, being one of those texts. 1 Peter chapter uh, 3 verses 1 through 7. 1 Corinthians 14, 35. It, it says, let her, let her ask her own husband at home. Some texts are talking about the submission of women in the context of marriage. Other texts are just talking about the submission of, of women in the context of gender. Now, I want to put a caveat on that. All women are not subject to all men in the same way wives are subjected to their own husband. Got me? It's not, it's not exactly the same. And so you find, uh, I found four or five instances in the New Testament where it says, let wives be subject to their own husbands. So let's not us as males go around saying to all the females, you know, get in line behind me. I don't think that's exactly the point. But in the context of the church gathered, it seems to me that there is a sense in which femaleness is subject to maleness. And, and, and when you look at those texts that Paul makes the point of that, uh, where he makes that point in 1 Corinthians 11 and in 1 Timothy 2 and Titus 2, it seems to me that, uh, that there is a sense in which women as women need to be in submission and not leading men. So in 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach men. Uh, or to exercise authority over men, not just teach her husband, but to teach men. So there is, in my opinion, there is two sides to that. There is the element of submission within marriage. That ought to be reflected in the church. And there is the element of submission uh, gender-wise as, as well. How can we, uh, single women share their needs with the church? Well, it seems to me that there are a number of contexts. Uh, ministry groups in which that can happen. And when there is a prayer request, and this has happened now for many, many, many years, uh, a woman simply can say to, to any one of the men, would you be sure to pray about this thing? And, and, and that's taken care of. Now, I'm gonna, that's a pretty safe one. Uh, I'm going to stick my neck out a little bit, and, and this probably will at least uh, cause some pause for thought. But when it comes to the calling out of a hymn, I know that there are times when when uh, somebody has said to me, I, I'd like to sing this hymn. 
I have to say to you that when it comes from a woman through a man, it, it's, it still strikes me as the woman leading. And, and so in general terms, I, I, my inclination is to shake it off. I, I, and, and, it's, and again, it's the man's decision whether he calls that. But, but I think we just need to be careful. I think we ought to be able to trust. I think women ought to be able to trust that if God wants a certain hymn to be sung, that it'll be sung. In fact, have you not noticed in the meeting, have you not at, at some time, speaking of men now, but even a woman who has thought about a particular song, have you not had your songbook open to a particular song and thought, I'm going to call that out and somebody else does? No, I mean, that's the way the Lord works. It really isn't dependent upon whether we necessarily, individually, uh, are the ones that do that or someone else. If the Lord wants that song sung, I guess I'm just of the mind that it'll probably happen. What about asking questions in church? That's, that's a, that's a good one. Obviously in the public meeting of the church for women to, to engage in questioning, I think is, is, is not a good thing. What about afterwards? Uh, sometimes when, when I'll be sitting up here and, and someone will come to ask a question, I'm not really too paranoid about that, but I think we ought to understand that Paul's point is in 1 Corinthians 14 by saying let her ask her own husband at home, Women ought to be purposely uh, facilitating the spiritual leadership of their husband. And if every time a woman has a question, she goes to somebody other than her husband, then it, it seems to me that that sort of undermines the intent. And that as a wife says to her husband, I've really been wondering about this, then that puts it on his plate. It makes the responsibility his to think about uh, I'm not overly paranoid about it, and often a husband and wife will be standing here and we'll talk about some issue, and I don't get really upset about it. But understand the goal. The goal is for men to be spiritual leaders, and women ought to embrace that and facilitate it every way that they can. Here's a couple that aren't on your notes. E. I didn't have room, so I just stuffed it in my notes and figured you could write it in. Deaconesses. What about deaconesses? Are there such creatures? Well, I would say this. You basically are stuck with one text. Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Phoebe, who is a... And if you'll notice, by the way, in virtually every major translation, it says servant. And then it may, I think NIV has in brackets, or deaconess. And so some, like New American Standard, and what will make that as a marginal note. But I have to tell you, folks, that's really weak. Really, in one text, and, and, and I'm saying that because the word, it happens to be in Romans 16, 1, it happens to be the feminine form of servant. But, but the whole, the term diakonos is, is just a term for servant or minister of the gospel in a non, uh, clerical sense. It, it is just a word that means one who serves. And so you have 30 instances where that uh, noun is used in the New Testament, three of which it is clear that it is an office and in none other, in my opinion. You've got uh, Philippians 1.1 where Paul writes to the elders and the deacons. I think it's pretty clear that's that's what it's talking about there. First Timothy chapter 3 uh, twice when he's talking about the qualifications of elders and deacons, he, he uses that term. Three out of 30, 10% of the time, it's used in a technical way. If you looked at the verb form, it would be even a smaller percentage in my opinion. And so 
you're taking a very, let's say, rare use and imposing it on a text where it's, it's most easy to read that text as, here is a woman who serves her church. Wonderful. But, but that doesn't mean that there's an office of deaconess. I'm not paranoid about churches that have the office of deaconess, but, but I have to say, you have to be careful. If you view it as an office, then there tends to be decision-making and, and whatever that happens, and in my opinion, it's an unnecessary thing to do. Try this on for size, especially after this morning. Books and hymnals, uh, hymns authored by women. You know the song that we were that we were first to sing in, in at the Lord's t Supper. You notice it was an, a, a woman, at least unless there's a man named Anne. <laughs> it was a woman, didn't know her personally, but I, I think that's the way it was. Ira Sankey, I think, did the did the music, but. Uh, and and then we sang a song by Twyla Paris, and there may have been others. So some would say, well, how far are you going to carry this matter in terms of that? Here's what I would say. When I read a book, if you've ever seen one of my books, and even every once in a while, if you see one that's in the library where I've just lost all control, and, and somebody says some nonsensical thing, man, I'll draw a line on it, and I'll write on the margins and whatever, and I would say, it's pretty clear that author isn't in exercising authority. <laughs> you know, I'm reading somebody's opinion. And so I don't get paranoid about that. And when it comes to a song or a hymn, we actually had years ago, we encouraged the women to write something of worship that could be shared. It seems to me that in that context, the woman is not standing up. She is not prominent. In fact, my guess is a number of you didn't even notice that what you were singing was by a woman. It just isn't, it, it, it isn't her femininity that's, that's the prominent thing, or she is a person. So I don't have problems with that, and I don't know very many people that do, but some like to raise the question because they think we're kind of crazy anyway. Okay. Comments. Remember that most ministry occurs outside the church. What we are talking about primarily, not exclusively, but what we've been talking about when it comes to the ministry of women, we have been talking primarily about what takes place in the context of the church gathered. There is a lot of ministry. In fact, the vast majority of ministry of any church takes place outside of Sunday morning. In fact, think about it. Even with, with the size group we have and the men, I mean, how many men have the opportunity to have any significant, prominent role? It, it's just not, that's not where it happens. So when you look at Ephesians chapter 4, and it talks about uh, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers, that their work is to equip the body for the work of ministry, that work generally takes place outside the body. And so for anybody to get too uptight about not having a prominence in the church gathering seems to me to miss the point of where most ministry happens. Secondly, or B, there are abuses. There are abuses. There have been, there will be. But abuses don't set aside the clear teaching of Scripture. And, and so we deal with abuses we deal with them as sin, but we don't just say, because there's been abuse, those rules no longer apply. See, try this on for size. 
While women should not teach men, men should learn from them. I hope you believe that, men. I hope you believe that. We should learn from our children. Have you not found that sometimes little kids will say something or ask us something or do something, and it forces us to think about that, and we say, wow, I should have thought of that before. So it isn't, what I'm saying is, it isn't all knowledge and guidance and all of that is not just all one stream that's always flowing from husband to wife. If there is the kind of mutuality that I believe there ought to be in a marriage, then there is a lot that is going to be learned. The question is the manner and the attitude in which that transaction takes place. Uh, when I see David and Abigail, I see David learning from her. In fact, I see David gently corrected by her. But she was right. She was right. And and don't you find sometimes as, as, as husbands, even though you know I'm in charge, you know they're right. And and we need to learn. We need to acknowledge that. I think I would extend this one other step, and that is to the, to the point of discipline and correction. Submission, the submission of... of the woman, the wife to her husband, or women to men, does not preclude, in my opinion, the necessary correction of the scripture that it talks about when one is overtaken in a sin, Matthew chapter 18, Galatians chapter 6, and other texts. It seems to me that we dare not, as men, pull the trump card out of submission and say, you can't tell anybody that our marriage is going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, because you're in submission to me. Scripture says, if there's a problem, you are to go to the one involved, and if that doesn't work, you go beyond for help. And friends, that applies to marriage as much as, sometimes more than, other relationships. So be careful with the submission thing, that you don't think that somehow this male-female, husband-wife scenario precludes doing what the Scripture tells us uh, to do. How do women worship silently at CBC? I asked the women that, and some responded. But one, they prepare. Wouldn't it be easy? Would it not be easy, if men, if, if you were a woman, to say, I don't have to do anything on Sunday morning. Why prepare? They prepare. They read the scriptures. They look in the bulletin. They see what's going to be done. They prepare their hearts for worship. When they get here, they pray. They pray in worship, in devotion, and they all also pray for us men. <laughs> and sometimes I think they pray like I do when there's a long period of silence. Oh, Lord, please get somebody amongst the men to do something, to actually take the leadership. They pray. And they listen to what is said. They listen to the words. They're edified by them. They're encouraged by them. And they worship in all of that. As I said last week, you don't have to be publicly participating to be worshiping. And I think that's a wonderful uh, thing for the uh, women. By the way, I say there, we should not overlook uh, team ministry. Uh, and I'm thinking now of Priscilla and Aquila. As I read the scriptures, it seems to me that you have the highest level of restriction taking place when the whole body is gathered together. But when you look, for instance, at the fact that in the New Testament church, many of those churches were house churches. 
and, and you look at Paul talking to Priscilla and Aquila about the church that's in their house. In the informality of the home, there's there's a somewhat different role. Would you not agree? I mean, I, I don't think it's wrong for the woman to pass the roles and say, would you like one or or whatever. There's just more flexibility and interchange that takes place. But when you look at the, the instance with Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos in Acts chapter 18, there it seems to me that somehow they were both engaged in ministry. And, and so I don't want to to overlook that partnering kind of ministry where husbands and wives are working together. It doesn't set aside the submission element, but it doesn't exclude the woman from being a significant part of the conversation. And if you know, if it's a couple ministering to a couple, then it is very, very essential that a woman may be involved in that as well. Uh, let's see. Carrie Dula said something that I guess I want to uh, I want to emphasize as part of point F. Many of the principles that apply to women also apply to men. I said, "To God be the glory." Carrie Dula at breakfast this week said, "It's just a matter of where we are on the chain." <laughs> and, and 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 in a sense, women are at one place and men are at the other place. But throughout that whole chain, the purpose is to focus on Christ and bring glory to Him. So, you know, as the woman is seeking to bring glory to her husband, her husband is seeking to bring glory to, to Christ, then in the end, nobody, man or woman, is to be the recipient of the glory. It is Christ who is to get the glory. So it's just where we are on that chain, but all of us ought to be pointing to him. And so if you look at it that way, the glory is not to be for men. Now, I want to say, in conclusion, I want to go to Proverbs 31. and ooh, I better do it very quickly. May I say a couple of things about Proverbs 31? One is, everybody starts at verse 10. I want to start at verse 1. And here's what I see. Here's a king who is being counseled by his mother. And she's, she's counseling him, about, in effect, about wine, women, and song. That's not a bad thing to be talking to politicians about. And, and so she's telling him, you need to be able to think soberly. You need to be able to think straight. You need to, to, to have your full resources and strengths focused in terms of your duty, and you don't need to be chasing around after the girlies. I mean, that's, I know it's, it's paraphrased, folks, but it's there. Trust me, if you read it, if you don't believe it. And, and so what, what she's saying is, is here's where your focus ought to be. It's interesting when you parallel this with Deuteronomy 17 and what God says to kings. It's also interesting when you parallel that with Daniel chapter 4 and how Nebuchadnezzar was messing up because the bottom line is the king is to be looking out for the weak. He is to be caring for the unfortunate. He is to be judging righteously and, and looking out for the rights of the afflicted and the needy. That's what he's to do. Here's my point. Women here are leading, if I may say so, from behind. I mean, What's so wrong, and I think it's related to that text in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, where it says she shall be saved in childbearing. I know every interpretation in the world goes there, but think about it. If a woman is a godly mother in her home, and she is raising godly sons and daughters, think of the incredible impact that ministry has. And all I'm saying is, isn't that what we see in Proverbs 31, 1 through 9? 
Here is a king whose life has been shaped by his mother's words. Wow, what a tremendous impact. You know, thousands of people impacted by what that woman has done. And then, of course, verses 10 through 31, I want to say just a couple of things. Notice verse 11. Her husband trusts in her. He trusts in her abilities. He gives her the freedom and the resources to engage in things that we would be surprised at, especially in an Old Testament context. She's considering a field and buying it. She's managing some kind of home business. She's producing goods, meals, clothing. This gal is incredible, and she teaches. She has the teaching of kindness on her lips, and she ministers to the poor. What incredible ministries. And I would say, a lot of it is because of the confidence and the provision that the husband has made to utilize her abilities and, and the resources God has given to her. Here's where I'm going to end. She deserves public praise. She may not have a public ministry. Isn't that interesting? She may not sit at the city gate making decisions, but she ought to be praised at the city gate. It says that her children should rise up and bless her, her husband also, as he praises her. In effect, it says, let her works praise her in the gates. She's not standing at the gates <laughs> telling about all she's done. She is appreciated by her family and in particular by her husband. And I, Can I end this way and just say, I thank God for the women of this church. They are one of the best blessings I have ever had. I would not, I, I've often bragged on our elders and I'll keep doing that, but I want to tell you, when it comes to women's ministry, it makes men's ministry look pale. We have never had to say to the women, would you girls please get something going? You know, could you not do this? They're always, they're always out there. They're moving ahead of us. They're, whenever there's a need, they're on the ball. And I'm just saying, God has marvelously used women in our body in incredible ways. And many of the things that we may see publicly are really the fruit of private labor. And I want to just end by thanking God for the women. Father, thank you for the godly women in this body. Thank you for the way in which you have blessed us with them, the way they have prayed for us, the way that they have made provisions for us, the way that they have ministered to other women and to our children. We are grateful for them, and we praise you for them, and we ask that we as men might give them the freedom to minister in those areas where it is absolutely legitimate. We pray that we would honor them and guard them and protect them and facilitate them. In Jesus' name.